get into his word. And I'm just so glad that you all made it here tonight. So please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we just come to you in, in Jesus' name. And I'm so thankful, Lord, for the opportunity to be here tonight with my sisters, Lord, and to share your word with them. I thank you for each and every woman who, who is here, Lord, who, who made that effort um, to come tonight, Lord. I thank you for the discussions that they had. And I ask now, Lord, that you would open all of our hearts to receive from your word. God, we, we desire to know you, Lord. We want to know more about your love. And so we trust that you will speak to our hearts tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, you know, when you look in the, the table of contents at the beginning, when like our study guide, um, like I said, we're in lesson 17. I thought, wow, love is kind of like far down on the list there. You know, because you just think God's love is one of those first things that pops into your mind. Sometimes it's called his omnibenevolence. Like we have his omnipresence, right? His omniscience, his omnibenevolence. He's like, he's all loving. And like I said, it was kind of weird to me. At, honestly, at the beginning, I saw that love was so far, far down there. But the way they have it organized, you know, at the beginning they had um, the first half of the study were those natural attributes of God, those incommunicable things, the things that only God is. Like he's eternal. He's our creator. And then the attributes now at the second half, those are the ones that are, are called those, the moral or communicable attributes. These are things that God, that we can partake of with God, that he can impart to us things like his um, wisdom and things like his love. But it still seemed odd to me, like I said, that love was so far down until I started to work on my study. And I realized, honestly, that as simple and as straightforward as God's love appears, I think truly is probably his attribute, one of his attributes that's the most misunderstood by believers and by non-believers. Because you hear people throw around all the time about God being love. In fact, I was driving to work in one of the freeway overpasses recently. You know, God is love. And so I think it's one of those attributes that truly is really uh, misunderstood. It's misunderstood by non-believers sometimes because what they say to us is, well, how can a God of love allow evil? And they may not say it just like that, but their whole notion is, okay, if he's a God of love, how come babies are born with birth defects? Or if, there's a God, if he's a God of love, why is there war? And the bottom line, they're saying, okay, if he's a God of love, then um, why, did, why is there evil? And so some people will follow that thinking, that line of logic, and they'll say, he can't be all-powerful. He cannot be all-loving because an all-loving God would use his omnipotence, would use all of his power to get rid of evil. And since evil is not defeated, that means God is not all-loving and he's not all-powerful. So they kind of like take themselves through this kind of thinking. And the problem with this line of reasoning, though, is the assumption that because evil is not defeated now, that evil is never going to be defeated, right? But we know the end of the story, and we know that one day evil will be defeated. And that's because our God is both all-loving and he's all-powerful, right? So a lot, of mis- a lot of unbelievers misunderstand God's love. And even Christians, though, we can misunderstand his love in different ways. And I think the first way is because we try to equate God's love with um, our human love because that's our point of reference. I mean, that's just our point of reference. And no matter how pure our human love is, the, mother, the love between a mother and a child, for example, no matter how pure our human love is, it's always going to be tainted by our sin nature. And so what happens, um, our love becomes conditional. It becomes self-gratifying. Our love becomes motivated by selfish desires. And sometimes we start to think that God's love is like that. Or even though we know God's love isn't like that, still what happens is um, we act as if we think that is true. So, for example, maybe we think, well, God, um, he loves us because of who we are, or he loves me less now because I did this or that. So we all pray also sometimes to the lies of Satan about God's love. That's another way that we as believers, that we can misunderstand God's love. Because Satan will say, because we have sinned, God loves us less, or because... 
um, of certain things, like we've, we've messed up again and again, like we've used up God's love quota for us or something. We've exhausted his love. But like I said, those are things we know are, are not true, and we'll go through our study today and look at those. So as I was pondering about God's love, I realized, as simple as it seems, it really, really is a lot deeper and a lot more complicated than, than it is um, on the surface. So there's a classic passage about love, and it's First John um, verses chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. And it says, Beloved, let us love one another. For God, love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is the third expression that the Apostle John uses to tell us about the nature of God. When he says God is love, it's kind of like the third statement he's made about who God is. In, in his gospel in John chapter 4, he says God is spirit. In 1 John in chapter 1, he says God is light. And then here in 1 John chapter 4, he says God is love. So those are kind of like three different statements that the Apostle John makes about God's nature. And none of them give us a complete revelation of who God is. But when we put them all together, they give us a better understanding into who God is and what God's like. For example, when he says God is spirit, he talks about God's essence, that he's not flesh and blood. And because he's spirit by nature, God isn't going to be limited by time and space as we are. When John says that God is light, that actually makes a reference to his holy nature because all through the scriptures, light talks about holiness. It's like a symbol of holiness, just as darkness becomes a symbol of sin. So when he says that um, God is light, he's letting us know that God cannot sin because God is holy. And then when John says that God is love, it's not that um, one thing I read it says love does not define God, but God defines love. Right? So love doesn't define God. When we say God is love, it's not like that's a definition of who God is. But God defines what love is. And all of his other attributes, whether it's his wrath, his sovereignty, his power, his justice, everything else about God is exercised in light of his love. So his love is a holy love. His love is a holy love. And so we have to keep that in mind. There's a book by a gentleman named J.I. Packer, and the book is called Knowing God. And he writes, he goes through the attributes of God. And when he kind of gets to the chapter which talks about God's love, he says, when we looked at God's wisdom, we saw something of his mind. When we thought about God's power, we saw something of his hand and of his arm. When we consider his word, we learn about his mouth. But now, contemplating his love, we are to look into God's heart and we shall stand on holy ground. That's how I think it is. As you look at all the other attributes, they tell us something about God. But when we look at God's love, we're looking straight into his heart. So in the next, now 43 minutes, we're going to try to learn about God's love. We're going to try to learn about God's love. But like all of his attributes, we have to remember his love is unlimited, right? It's infinite. And so it's one of those things that we're going to barely scratch the surface on. And I really hope your discussion group and our study tonight is just going to motivate you to study this topic more. So the way we're going to look at tonight, we're going to look at three different points. We're going to look at how God's love is described, how his love is demonstrated, and then how his love demands a response, how his love is described, how God's love is demonstrated and demands a response. And I'm one of those note-taking folks like some of you out there. And I just want to remind you what, what God always reminds me of. And it's just to be sure that what you put down on the paper also makes it into your heart. You know, because I can be one of those people, like, I'll, like I write stuff down too, but I just don't want you ever to get caught up in so much of the writing. Like, oh, you want to write stuff down. Just let God, just like, let that stuff sink into your heart. So we're going to look first at how God's love is described. And there's a lot of different verses in the Bible, different passages that address God's love. 
The Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 3, in verses 14 through 19, he, he lets his prayer just erupt out of his heart. And in that prayer, he's, you know, he says, I, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's praying for the believers in Ephesus to be strengthened with might in his Holy Spirit, that Christ could dwell in their hearts. And then he gets down there and he says, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And so verse 19 has always struck me as kind of odd because he says to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, because it almost sounds like he's desiring something for us that we can't achieve. We can't attain. And so if you look at, um, we know the word know and knowledge are different. I mean, verb and noun, but a different reading of it would be to know through experience, the love of Christ, which passes mere head knowledge. That's what his desire, that we would know and we would experience the love of God. It wouldn't just be head knowledge. And so we have to remember that knowing about God's love intellectually is not enough. The head knowledge about God's love is not enough. He wants us to experience that love personally in our lives. And so as we describe a little bit about his love, just keep that in mind, that, his head, that head knowledge about God's love isn't enough, but we have to experience it personally. And as believers, we can experience God's love personally. We can in Romans um, 5, 5, Paul writes, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So God has made it possible for us to know that love. And it's through the channel of the Holy Spirit. It says that God's love has been poured out in our hearts. Poured out means to rush out. It's like to run, like to be spilled out. So you don't have a trickle of God's love in your heart. <laughs> okay, God's love has been poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit because God wants us to be able to experience that love. So as we're trying to describe his love, like I said, he gave us his Holy Spirit so we can experience it. And in Jeremiah 31, three, there was a verse in our homework and the prophet says, I, um, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So God's love in this verse is described as an everlasting love. And that means his love's not going to end. God's love isn't going to fail. Our God is eternal. So that means his love is going to be eternal. And there are a lot of things about this world that don't last, right? I mean, I, I chuckle, you see things or you buy things with a lifetime guarantee, right? It's a lifetime guarantee as long as the company doesn't go out of business, right? And then the company goes out of business. And I mean, these things are supposed to last, but they're not. So when we think of God's love as everlasting love, I was really thinking about it. We know that we as human beings are just a little blip on the eternal radar screen. I mean, if you think about it, God has been around forever. And there came a point in time when God in Genesis 1-1 created the heavens and the earth. But it's not like God started then. The story started way back a long time ago. And so I was thinking about it. Okay, so if God is love, as John tells us, if that's his nature and his essence, then what was God doing with this love before he created us? Because we talk about God's love is everlasting love, right? And I'm thinking, okay, but we haven't been here for everlasting. <laughs> you know, we haven't been here that long. And so we have to remember that way before God ever loved us, he loved his son. Within the Godhead, there was, there was this intimate love between the father and the son, and Jesus talks about it a lot in the Gospel of John, those last, that last week of his life. In John 17, 24, and this is when Jesus is making his final prayer there, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. And then Jesus says, For you loved me before the foundation of the world. So that everlasting love, Jesus experienced from the Father, from the foundation of the world. And the Son, in, in like manner, loved the Father. 
from eternity past. So as Jesus is leaving the upper room there and as he's heading out to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's talking to his disciples, he says, but that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father has given me commandment, so I do. Further on in John 15, verse 9, he says, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you, he's telling his disciples, so abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. So we see Jesus talking about his love towards the Father. In these verses, it's actually linked with his obedience because his perfect love towards God was demonstrated in his perfect obedience. We often think about the, how the plan of redemption, the whole sacrifice of Christ, it was like put into motion when Adam fell in the garden, when sin entered in. And I'm not saying that it wasn't, but it's also to think about it. It's interesting for me to think about this whole thing from God's perspective as a father. We know that Jesus is called the son of his love. Right in Colossians 1.13. So like any good father, what does God do? He seeks a bride for his son. Right? So God loves his, fa- uh, God loves his son. One commentator put it like this. This love between the father and the son is important because it leads to all the other loves. Because God the father perfectly loves the son, salvation is planned. As the father seeks a bride for his son, And as the son in perfect obedience and perfect love for the father is willing to pay the price for the bride, the immense price of redemption, he obeys the father's will out of love for him and becomes a substitute and receives the wrath of God for all who would believe. So we talk about God's everlasting love. Of course, we're talking about God's love towards us. But I just want you to keep in mind that God's everlasting love was first and foremost demonstrated in that love between the father and the son. That was something. And as it says, all the other love, God's love towards us comes from that but god's love for his son and the son's love for the father is is an everlasting love also another passage in our homework which talks about god's love and kind of describes it is first corinthians chapter 13 and that's a a passage um, that we're all familiar with where it says you know love suffers long it's kind it doesn't envy it doesn't parade itself it goes through all of these characteristics it thinks no evil it doesn't rejoice in iniquity it rejoices in the truth and we could spend a whole study on this passage. And I really hate to treat, treat these verses so lightly. Um, but all I'm going to say about these particular verses is that no matter how long you have been a Christian, you and I, we really need to periodically go back to this passage and truly just read it slowly and meditate on it and reflect on all the different ways that God has manifested his love to us in his kindness, in his long suffering, in his patience towards us, the hope he gives us to endure difficult situations. All of these are manifestations of God's love towards us. So go home and read it again. <laughs> no, truly. It's one of those things like 1 Corinthians 13. It's, just, it's a lovely passage. But it gives you a lot of descriptors for God's love. His love is everlasting. All of those things we see in 1 Corinthians 13. The last thing I want to say about describing God's love tonight, because like I said, this scripture is full of them. But the last one I want to mention is, we could probably describe God's love as something that's inseparable. And I just, for lack of a better way of saying it, the idea is that a child of God can't be separated from his love. We can't be separated from his love. And that's the passage in Romans chapter eight. That again, if you went through your discussion group or flipped through your homework, you saw. That's what the apostle Paul, he says, what can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? He goes through all these things. And Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it's written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. 
And then Paul says, yet in all these things, the distress, the persecution, and all those things, we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. And here's the, the punchline, right? For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's love is something that's inseparable from us as believers. And it's so crucial that we understand this and that we believe it. Because as I said at the beginning, even as Christians, we can misunderstand God's love. There's times when we um, misunderstand because we equate it with that human love. And all of us at some time in our life have experienced rejection. There's some time in your life when you can look back when, there, when you experience rejection. I'm a fifth grade teacher. You know, and fifth graders are kind of past this stage, but you can all relate to it where, you know, one kid tells another kid on the playground, I'm not going to be your friend anymore, right? And we can chuckle at that now as adults, but when that happens to, at that moment, it's devastating, right? When your friend rejects you like that, or maybe growing up, you like somebody, but they didn't reciprocate that, right? Maybe you had a crush on someone, but like they didn't reciprocate those feelings. So you had that sense of rejection, or as an adult, you know, young adult or an older adult, I mean, there could be a relationship that you were in could come to an end. It doesn't really matter who broke it off. But at that point, um, there's pain, there's that sense of rejection. Or a woman who was married who might end up going through a divorce, the sense of loss that comes with that, the shame, the pain, the humiliation, against that, again, that sense of rejection. And we sometimes think that with God's love, we're going to experience that rejection. But what does Paul remind us of? He says nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Lord. And nothing means no thing. There's nothing. I mean, you can let your imagination run wild. You might think, okay, well, what if I do this? I mean, what if I stop going to church? What if I start taking drugs? What if I fall into sexual sin? What if I get arrested? None of those things are going to change the tremendous love that God has for you. None of those things can change his love towards you. Now I may reject God and I may reject his offer of love, but God's love for me remains unchanged. His love for me remains the same because his love is unconditional. His love does not depend on what we do or what we don't do. And so nothing, there is nothing that can separate us from his love. And on this same topic, though, before I move on, I do need to add one little thing, though, because while my disobedience and my sin, they, they break that fellowship I have with God, right? So God can't have fellowship with me when there's sin in my life because we know that God is holy. Now, when that happens, when there, that fellowship is broken, his love for me remains the same. His love doesn't change. However, if I continue to live in that sin and that rebellion and that disobedience, his love for me remains unchanged, but I may bring his discipline upon my life. The way I, if I keep walking in that disobedience, I can bring his discipline upon my life. And we read about that in Hebrews chapter 12 in verses 5 and 6. And then in chapter, in verse 10, the author says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you rebuke by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And so he goes on, he talks about how when we're disciplined, God treats us as children. He makes that connection between our earthly fathers, right, who disciplined us. And then he goes on and says, for they, our earthly fathers, indeed, they disciplined us for a few days. They chastened us as it seemed best to them. But God does it for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Remember earlier we said that God is light, God is holy. So while his love for us is inseparable in that sense, we have to be careful that we don't abuse that love and then just think we can do whatever we want. And yeah, he's still going to love us, but we're just asking for a trip to the woodshed, right? If we just follow down that road. 
So his, the scriptures describe God's love in many ways, as an everlasting love, as in 1 Corinthians, many of those adjectives, and as a love, like we said, that, um, is, that we cannot, nothing can separate us from that love. So all of those things together, they give us a deep glimpse, glimpse into like, the nature of God's love towards us. So God has this love that we've been describing, and how has he demonstrated how is God's love demonstrated? And again, scriptures are full of examples of how God's love is demonstrated. And his love is so different than our human love on so many levels. Um, and so there's two things I want to look at, two ways that he demonstrates his love. I mean, there's a lot more, but tonight, two things. We're going to look at his care for mankind and the world. God demonstrates his love like for man in general. And then obviously we know his love is demonstrated at Calvary's cross. Those are two different things we're going to look at. But so God demonstrates his love and his care for, for the world as a whole. As we said earlier, his love has been around way longer than this world has, right? And longer than, than mankind has. But like we said, there came a point in time when God decided to create this world and everything that we know. So he created Adam, he created Eve and set them in this world to take care of it. Now, even after the fall, while sin has made man's task a whole lot harder, God continues to demonstrate his love for the world. One way that he does that is he pours out like his favorite is grace to all people. One commentator said this. He said, the very fact that the Lord lets the unregenerate get up in the morning, smell the coffee, have a good breakfast, kiss the person they love, hug a baby, go off to a stimulating career, enjoy a great meal in a comfortable car and a sunset and a beautiful seascape and hear music and enjoy all the common grace of life. That's an expression of God's love for humanity. He loves all men unconditionally in that physical, temporal sense. So all of those little blessings that we take, partake of day by day, those are all evidence of God's love for us. He shows that, that kind of grace and favor to all people. He also demonstrates his love for the world um, in the, the way that he shows compassion and pity towards his creation, the way he grieves over lost souls. That's a sign of God's love. In his great love, we know that he doesn't want anybody to perish, even the godless, even the heathen. His, it's not his desire that they would perish. And we see that in both the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet writes in Ezekiel eighteen thirty-two, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. So we see God pleading with the people to turn. That's his heart. That's his love. We also see in the New Testament, in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So God grieves over lost souls in the world. And that's another way he demonstrates his love towards his creation. Now, another display of God's love for the world is what I call the gospel offer. That God, he pursues each and every person in the world here with a message of love and salvation. That's a sign of God's love, that God pursues us with that message of salvation. I mean, whether it's through creation, as we see in Psalm 19, 1, where it says the heavens declare the glory of God, right? And the firmament shows his handiwork. God reaches out to people through his creation, trying to show them that he loves them. Or as the apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, through our conscience that God has placed in every person. Paul tells in, in Romans 1, in verses 18 through 21, he tells about how, how men suppress the truth of God the, God, the truth that God has put in them. And he says in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his, so God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so they're without excuse. So although man is, rejects God many times and denies his existence, God continues in his love to reach out with that message of forgiveness, that message of hope. 
John 3.16, a verse that, that I would guess um, probably everyone in here knows, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God's love demonstrated in, the, in his desire to see salvation come. And what did Paul say? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So God's, desire, God's love is demonstrated in that, in that offer of the gospel, in that message of salvation. So he displays his love for the world and for his creation in the grace and that favor that he shows upon us day by day, the compassion and the pity that he shows and expresses towards lost man and then offering the gospel. And, the, and we can make the connection of the offer of salvation to the other way, the ultimate way that God demonstrates his love for us, and that's on the cross of Calvary, right? That's the biggest demonstration that us as believers, we see where we see God's love demonstrated. J.I. Packer, again in his book, um, Knowing God, he said, the measure of love is how much it gives. And the measure of the love of God is the gift of his only son to become human and to die for sins. And so to become the one mediator who can bring us to God. The New Testament writers constantly point to the cross of Christ as the crowning proof of the reality and the boundlessness of God's love. So the cross is continually pointed to as the proof of God's love. Jesus himself said in John 15, in verses 12 through 15, he said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. And what did Jesus say? Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So Jesus shows us that ultimate love of God in laying down his life for us. And as I was thinking about this, okay, I know I, I need to talk about this, but where do you begin to talk about the love of God? Like, as it's displayed at the, at the cross there, right? Um, another verse that we saw in our homework in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. I'm going to read it from the Amplified Version. And it says, While we were still helpless, that is, we were powerless to provide for our salvation. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died as a substitute for the ungodly. Now, it's an extraordinary thing for one to willingly give his life, even for an upright man. Though perhaps for a good man, for someone who's noble and who's selfless and worthy, someone might dare to die. But God clearly shows and proves his own love for us by the fact while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that whole idea, where do we how do we talk about the love of, of God? What did Jesus say? Laying down your life for a friend. And God tells us we were still sinners. It's like we, he, Jesus is calling us friends. But at that point, it's like we were still not even friends. We were still at enmity with God. And yet he sacrifice himself so you think there's nothing that we could do to deserve that love and why was it necessary then well we know in romans six twenty three that the wages of sin is death but the gift of god's eternal life so paul writes that um, we were dead in our trespasses and sin so we were separated from god our sins had separated us from god and there was no way that we ourselves could bridge that gap there's no way that we could repair that relationship with god jeremiah ten twenty three. Excuse me, the prophet says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in a man who walks to direct his own steps. You and I could have, we would have never figured this out. We could have never found our way back to God. There's no way that we could have done this on our own. Isaiah 64, 3 says, our, All of our righteousness are like filthy rags. There's nothing that we could have done to repair our, that relationship with God. We could not redeem ourselves. We could not pay that price for our own sins. And so Christ died, as we know, to restore that fellowship with God. In 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 18, Peter writes, and he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He tells us right there, that was the purpose, to bring us to God. And in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul writes and says, He died for all, that those who live should live no longer to themselves, but for him who died for them. So we know that the cross is that ultimate display of God's love and that um, there was nothing that we could do ourselves in order to do it. And 1 John in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, the, the, the epistle of 1 John, I know many of you are familiar with it. Again, just the topic of love is there. In John 4, in verses 9 and 10, it sums it up. The apostle writes, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son to the world that we might live through him. That's, we're talking about how is God's love displayed? God sent his son for us. You know, people always talk about love, but God proved it. I mean, you know, words are cheap, we say sometimes, right? You can talk all you want, but God, God put, put, that, put his words into action. He showed us. He showed us what love is. So his love is demonstrated in the love that he displays for mankind and ultimately, in the, and most deeply, in the death of Christ on the cross. So God's love, we know, is described as an everlasting love. We know that we cannot be separated from his love. We know that he pours out his love continually on, on the world. And so that love demands a response. God's love demands a response from us. I mean, even we talked about the difference between God's perfect love and our human love. But if you think about it, even our human love, with all of its imperfections and stuff, the human love we experience every day from our friends and families, it still elicits a response from us. I mean, our, the love that you experience with your spouse and within your family, with your friends, when well, I mean, people love us, we love them back. There's, there's always this reciprocation that happens. It's when we receive love from someone, it's natural to respond to them in some way. And so how much more then, right, when we receive God's love, are we going to respond to it? So the first and the most natural response that we can have to God's love is to accept his invitation for salvation, right? So God reaches out to us with the love of Christ, and that's the first thing. And if you're sitting here tonight, I'm, I'm guessing that you've accepted that invitation, right? You're here learning more about God because you've given him your heart. We accept his sacrifice on the cross. We embrace that forgiveness that he's given to us, right? It's kind of cool if you think about it. God wants to hang out with you for all eternity. You know, you think about that. Wow, I mean, he extended this love to us. And we know it's an everlasting love. Um, and with it, it's with that goal. I mean, we're going to get to hang out with God forever. So as we become a Christian and we accept God's love, that's one way for us to respond to it. But after that, I think, okay, so I accepted his offer of forgiveness, his salvation. Now, what else could we possibly do? Because anything else that we would offer to God seems so insignificant, right, compared to the love that he's given to us. It seems so insignificant. You know, I think that God anticipated this dilemma beforehand. And so instead of making us guess what he would want, Right? It's like, what could we give to God, right? He made it really clear in his word. He made it really clear what our response should be to that love. So this is the time you should get your pens out, right? No. But so what is it that God wants us to do, right? And then make sure everyone's ready. Everyone's like, okay, yeah. It's like my students, okay, everyone ready? I don't want to have to repeat this. Everyone ready? No. But what is it? It's just obedience. It's like, uh, that's all, you know, obedience. And I know I'm being silly about it, but um, so often I want to make things so complicated, I mean, that's just me personally. I, I, would, I have that tendency. It's kind of like when you, you're going shopping for someone. It's like you, have to, you want to find the perfect gift. You know, it's like, okay, what do you get this person? Well, I mean, what do you, get a, what do you give to a God who has everything? <laughs> I mean, what do, you, what do you give to him, right? Well, he wants our obedience. That's what he wants from us. That's what he wants. And again, obedience isn't something that's complicated. It may not be easy, but it's not something that's complicated. And again, Jesus made this really clear. The night before his death, when he was with his disciples there in the upper room, he was pouring his heart out to him because he knew that his time was short. Um, 
one thing, so in John chapter 14, like it's this whole time when he's with his disciples. In John chapter 14 and verse 15, he says to them, if you love me, keep my commandments. And a little further on, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And here I wrote, ouch. My disobedience says that I don't love him. Because he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Right? So we talk about what is it that God wants? He wants our obedience. And so another problem for me, I mean, I'm just sharing my problems with you here. He says, okay, keep, like, keep my commandments. Like, keep my word. And I'm thinking, okay, that can be very overwhelming because Jesus said a lot. <laughs> he was supposed to keep his word. He said a lot. And so um, it could lead to almost a legalistic approach. Okay, tell me what I have to do. Let me get out my checklist. Okay, I want to do all those things that God wants me to do, right? I want to be obedient to him. But again, I think God anticipated this dilemma. And so he made sure that the gospel writers included this dialogue between this lawyer and Jesus. And it's in Matthew chapter 22. And so this lawyer who was sent from the Pharisees had this discussion with Jesus. And he says to Jesus, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first thing, the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so our natural response to God's love, like we said, is to love him back, right? To accept that message of salvation. And how do we do that? Jesus said it's by being obedient to his word. And what does his word say? Love God first and love others. So that's what we're going to focus on here. Okay, we're supposed to be obedient. And what are we supposed to do? Love God and love others. So that's kind of like the bottom line here. But then again, the question is, okay, what does that actually look like? What does that mean for me in my life? And what does that mean for you? So loving God. And there's, again, so much we could say. But I, I just sum it up in... Loving God means making God a priority. Because if you think about it, we always make time for the people we love. We always make time for the things and the people we love. I mean, you'll drop certain things for certain people, right, that you're doing. So loving God means making God a priority. Matthew six thirty three, Jesus said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And I think what happens a lot of times is we put all the other things first, thinking that when we get them done, we'll fit God in. Right? So I'm going to do these things first, and then I'll have time for God. But, and, and you know, I see by the way you're shaking your head, like, it doesn't work like that. It's, it, we have to do it God's way. We have to put God first, and then everything else falls into its place. Because when we put those other things first, um, then it doesn't, God just does, it doesn't fit. Things don't fit. So making God that priority, making time for church, and not just to come to church, make time to jump in and serve. It increases our accountability. I mean, as you get involved in a ministry somewhere, whether it's once a month, you know, hanging out with the little kids and playing with them, whatever it is, um, as you get involved in ministry, like I said, it increases our accountability. But that's why a lot of people don't do it, because we like to just walk in and walk out. And or we feel that's all we have time for. But pray about it. You know, make, make God that priority. Another way that we can show our love to God is seeking him first, like we said, and staying in his word. His word is so important. I think about the parable of the sower you know, in Matthew um, chapter 13. And, and the seed, Jesus tells us, is the word of God. And it says in Matthew 13, 22, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. It's so easy for God's word to get choked out of our lives. It's so easy because of what? The cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, just the things, our normal life, things come up. So don't let your time in God's word, don't let your reading time get choked out of your schedule, right? I mean, we have to, like I said, make God that priority. Don't, not be legalistic about it, but, but make that effort. Keep him there. And again, prayer. Spend that time talking to God. These are ways that we can show our love to God. And Jesus is our example here. 
And some people get all chipped up about, okay, when should you pray? And when you look at the gospel, I mean, Jesus was praying all sorts of different times. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, it says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out, departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. So you could pray in the morning. For some of us, that works. In Mark chapter 6, in verse 46, it said, When he had sent them away, so the people who he was ministering to, he departed to the mountain to pray. So after a day's work at night, Jesus is praying. So maybe that works for you. Right? I mean, I don't know your schedule. You and God know your schedule, so you, you work, figure it out. Um, in Luke chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, it says, Great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and he prayed. So Jesus was ministering to them. So he needed that time of prayer so that he could be equipped. You know, God ministered to Jesus. And if he did that to his own son, I mean, and Jesus being God, we need to hear from God so we can go out and do what we need to do to be a mom, to be a, a daughter, to be a, you know, whatever your job is. Do all those things. We need God's um, help to do that. In Luke six twelve, it says, Now it came to pass in those days he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. It allows us, prayer allows us to recharge those spiritual batteries. So we want to show our love to God. We may need to make him that priority. Like we said, stay in his word and find that time to pray. Because as we show God our love, we're being obedient to him. Because he said, if you love me, keep my commandments, keep my word. So we said loving God was the first one and then loving others. This is how we show our obedience to God. And our sin nature makes this one really difficult, loving others. No, it does. Well, thank you. I'm not the only one. Okay. So Paul gives us some ways to do this. Paul gives us some, some advice here. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. In other words, to love others, I need to regard other people as more important than myself. Right? Because if, if it's always all about me, it's not going to work. But if I'm loving my neighbors then my actions aren't motivated by selfish ambition or conceit, but I'm putting other people first. He says, in lowliness of mind, that is with an attitude of humility. It says, be, being neither arrogant nor self-righteous. So it's that idea, considering others, right? Not in a self-righteous way or an arrogant way, but in a hum, with that humility in our mind. In verse 4, in Philippians 2, that was verse 3 and verse 4, he says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We need to ask the Lord to open our eyes to see the needs of those around us. Because again, I mean, we've got so much time. We've got this and this and this we have to do. And it's just so easy not to see the needs around us. So God wants us to love others. And so in order to do that, I need him to show me um, how to love on them. What is it that they need? So we need to ask God to open our eyes. And then finally, in Ephesians 5, 2, the apostle writes, and he says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given us for himself an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So walking in love, that's what Christ did. That's how he loved us, and he gave himself for us. So if I walk in love, I'm going to be willing to, to give myself for others. And when we choose to walk in love, that means we're following that example of Christ, and that pleases our Heavenly Father, just as Christ's sacrifice out for us out of love pleased God. So loving God and loving others, that's how we can, that's how we can demonstrate our love back to God. So God's loving, wow, in 42 minutes, pretty good. <laughs> no. You know, his love is an everlasting love. We said that at the beginning. God's love is everlasting. And long before he loved you and he loved me, he loved his son. And the son loved the father, right? And out of this love in the Godhead came that plan of salvation, which included us then. 
So God's love towards us is so strong that as a child of God, there's nothing that can separate you. And that's probably the one thing I really, really want you to go away with is knowing that there's nothing, there's nothing you can do that's going to make God love you less, right? Like I said, it's so easy for us to listen to the lies of Satan that, you know, God loves, doesn't love you as much now because you did this or because this person doesn't love me, you know, like that, that God doesn't love me either. But um, we need to stand on God's word. There's going to be times when you don't feel God's love. That if, if that hasn't happened, just you have to know. You're, there's going to be times when you're not going to feel that God loves you. There's not going to be the little goosebumps and the little, ooh, you know, it's not going to be there all the time. And so when that happens, we can't give in to those feelings, right? Because we have to stand on the word of God because the word of God tells us that he loves us. And you have to remember that you are very, very, very precious to God. And he loves you so much. In fact, the love that God has for you was demonstrated on the cross, right? We know when Christ willingly laid down his life for us, we didn't deserve it then and we still don't deserve it. But his love for us is, is that strong. And so he gives us this love and how should we respond to it? We need to respond to it by receiving the salvation, thanking, you know, receiving the gift that he's given to us. And then we need to do our best to live a life of obedience to his word. And how do we do that? Like we said, first, we need to love God, give him that place of priority in our life. And then we need to seek to love others and follow the example of Christ to do that. And we're not always going to succeed. We're going to mess up sometimes. And when we do, then we just get up, dust ourselves off, right? Ask for forgiveness from God, from the person we messed up, you know, messed up. And then we just step out and we walk in love again. And we remember, as Paul said, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as you think about all of this, we re- once again, we just are reminded that truly there is none like our, our God. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just are, at times, Lord, don't have the words just to thank you for this love that you have given to us, Lord, because we know ourselves, we know that we're creeps and we don't deserve it, but yet, Lord, You have just been so kind and so gracious to us, Lord. You've extended your love to us. And you've allowed us, Lord, to experience your love. You've allowed us to experience human love with our family, our friends. And, Lord, all we can do is just say thank you and to show you, Lord, that we love you through our obedience to you. And so I ask, God, that you would help each and every one of us, Lord, day by day, to walk in that obedience, Lord, to your word. Lord, In those times of weakness, give us the strength we need, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. Minister to our hearts, Lord, because our desire is to please you, Lord. We do love you, and as your children, we want to please our Father. So, Lord, we want to walk in that obedience. And, God, I ask that you would touch each woman here, Father, especially those who maybe don't feel loved at this moment, God. Wrap your arms around them. Remind them just just how precious they are to you. And we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.